Yeah. So I'm going to talk about the transition partly in going home, and we'll talk more about going home tomorrow. And um, and the ride, you know, it's a ride. Uh, it's a ride on retreat. It's a ride before you came. It's a ride on retreat. It's a ride when you go home. <laughs> Um, you know, if you had some illusion that coming on retreat would sort of somehow fix everything, <laughs> fix all your problems and fix your mind and, you know, make everything go away, you know, wrong retreat. <laughs> um, but it will give you mm, tools, practices, clarity, heartfulness, how to deal with whatever those rides and waves and bumps are, whether it's hesitancy or sad or heartful or confused or whatever. I'm sure if we went round there would be 72 different feelings or senses in here. And each of us will have our own journey as we transition from silent sitting to... um, whatever it is that you transition into. So think of this as the midway point of your retreat. You're, on a, you're really on a 14-day retreat. And uh, so tomorrow will be day eight or something like that. And that's the next part of the practice, is how you, um, how you embody and live these teachings, these practices of qualities of awareness and kindness in your life, in your conversations, in your work life, with your family, and um, you know, deal with all the things that come up in that, just as you've had to meet all the challenges here with as much patience and acceptance and kindness as you can. So, that's the journey. Right? How do we do that? Hopefully you have have a few more uh, things in your tool bag to help you with that. So I want to congratulate you for uh, still being here. <laughs> And having put all the work that you put in, it's it's not an easy journey, right? Having to get up every morning and sit with yourself without distraction for, I don't know, 16 hours a day or whatever. So, and it's beautiful to see from up here the the waking up in your faces, in your eyes, in your hearts. You know, it's a beautiful thing to to see, to witness, both in our meetings with you and also just seeing, you know, the the light. There's a lot more light glowing. If we plugged you into the grid, we'd probably, you know, not be paying for electricity here at Spirit Rock. There's a lot of brightness comes. Um, I can't say I'm feeling like that, but you look like that. (laughs) I'm feeling exhausted. I'm actually feeling sick, so I'm a little out of it tonight. So I'm also putting into practice what I'm teaching because I'm sort of just doing all I can to stay upright as I, as I speak this evening. So, um, 
So there's a there's a really uh, funny line from Bob Thurman, who's a Buddhist uh, scholar and uh, Tibetan Tibetologist, and uh, I'm not sure where he made this line, but he's good friends with Sharon Salzberg, and I heard it from her, and he she said. He's often saying, those Buddhists, all they talk about is practice, 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 practice. When's the performance? (laughs) Well, here it is. Well, tomorrow morning, 11 o'clock, when we boot you out, um, then we get to see, well, you know, what what are we practicing for, right? We don't just practice to be great uh, meditators here on the cushion, right? And that's nice, but the point is to awaken and, and live these teachings, these these qualities and mm, uh, jewels of the heart and the, and, the, and the mind. So, of course, every moment really is the performance, is the truth. You know, practice is just a... The, the problem with that word practice is it sets up this idea that we're practicing for something in the future rather than practicing as in to meet this moment as it is with wisdom and, and love. So in terms of the, the bigger context of the Buddhist path, since this retreat is called Essential Teachings of the Path, the, the fourth um, noble truth, which Harry pointed to but didn't go into detail, um, is really uh, the, the, where the Buddha laid out a more fuller mm, definition of, of, of the path of practice. And so here on the retreat, um, we've been practicing the last three limbs of that path. The limbs of wise effort, wise concentration, and wise mindfulness. So we've been working with cultivating, balancing, developing. We've also been doing other things, but they're they're the three that um, that we're most kind of drawing on uh, in terms of the Eightfold Path. And again, the point of those is not to perfect them in themselves. We have to take the path as a whole. And so those three last factors, the Eightfold Path, wise effort, cultivating wholesome states of mind, awareness, clarity, kindness, patience, acceptance, all these things you've been developing here. Releasing unwholesome states of mind, whether it's comparing or judging, or um, grasping, resistance, fear, things that obscure natural great peace that we've been referring to. And developing mindfulness, this clarity of awareness, and this unified quality of samadhi, concentration. We we develop those in support of what? In support of what? Why are we developing those? Why are we balancing those three aspects of the path in service of awakening. Yeah. What else? I mean, that's really all of it, but you know, just let's hear some more words. <laughs> awakening and uh, love and life. And I'll just wait till I get my word. Freedom. <laughs> Compassion. Insight, thank you. Insight, all right. Ten dollars to that lady in the back. <laughs> Insight, understanding, understanding our human experience, understanding our predicament, understanding 
who we are, understanding um, how to awaken. So the insight is in service of our awakening, not just for ourselves, but for all, all life. And so th- that, you know, if we, if we think of um, taking, again, the, the Eightfold Path as a whole, the, 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 the Eightfold Path is, is, is not really a path, it's cyclical and spiral, and it's really all, uh, um, it's sort of co-emergent, but if, taking that path sequentially for a moment, so the last three factors, F, uh, effort, mindfulness, concentration, leads to wise understanding, insight, clarity, Understanding of what? Understanding of the human condition. Understanding of what causes suffering, what causes, what allows, what supports for ease, peace, freedom, awakening. We want to know what's what. We want to know, we want to understand the characteristics that affect our life so we can navigate and and really ride those waves with, with capacity, with freedom. So the, the, the wise understanding is really understanding the Four Noble Truths, is how we spoke about. So again, we're coming full circle, and we're always coming in circles back to, really, we're always at the beginning of who are we? What are we doing here? How do we, how do we establish uh, a sense of peace and well-being in the midst of any circumstance? Unconditioned happiness, the Buddha talked about it. And out of that understanding, which is also is an understanding of karma, karma as in action, as in actions have consequences, understanding that we have the power to transform our mind, the nature of the neuroplasticity of the brain, that we can transform our experience through practice, through choice, through wise intention, just as you've been doing here, hundreds and thousands and thousands of moments every day, transforming dullness and sleepiness and distraction and comparing and restlessness and all the different tunnels of the mind that cause us to feel contracted and small, to seeing those, understanding, releasing, to meeting our experience with kindness, with love, with care, we're transforming our mind state. You know, if you think about all the, the mind moments of this week, right? It's, it's been, you know, it's really been probably trillions, but in the ones we've actually tracked and, and, and seen and transformed, the amount of times, I mean, we probably collectively come back to the present moment a million times. At collect, you know, it's kind of amazing, right? That, that's, we're planting seeds. Right? Practice is planting seeds so that capacity to to continually reawaken is more possible, more accessible. So in the second uh, aspect of the Eightfold Path that arises out of our understanding that actions have consequences, that we can transform our inner and outer experience. The Buddha talked about um, transforming three things, uh, transforming uh, desire, sense desire, and self-centered desire into renunciation, to letting go, which you've been doing a lot of this week. Transforming cruelty in the mind to in the heart to one of uh, compassion, and transforming aversion and hatred into kindness. 
And so that really becomes the fundamental orientation that we move through life with kindness, with compassion, and with a sense of non-grasping, non-clinging, of letting go. What a beautiful way to live. That's a beautiful mind. A mind, heart. When we say mind, the word in, in, in Pali, Sanskrit, is citta, which really is located here, and it means mind, heart. So whenever you hear mind, just like you hear the word mindfulness, it sounds mental, but it's actually referring to a whole mind-heart experience. So what a beautiful mind-heart to live with kindness, compassion, and uh, the freedom of letting go. And again, you've been cultivating these seeds. This is not something foreign to your experience. We've been cultivating kindness through the meta practice and also just bringing a caring attention to the moment. And compassion as we meet our inevitable suffering. Is there anybody who wasn't suffering on this retreat? I don't see a flurry of hands going up, right? And that's where we practice. We step forward, we lean into with care, with warmth, with tenderness, with, with embracing. And so the practice is both to, we've nurtured that in ourselves, and then we're stepping out into the world and life, family, work, shops, and wherever, restaurants. And we're going to be taking those qualities more outward, into our conversations and connections. And that's really where the rubber hits the road. You know, how you take these qualities from here into your life. So there's a lovely um, uh, story from the poet Hafez, who we've quoted a few times, where this student of his comes in and all excited because he's had these very powerful mystical visions of God. So he tells Hafez these experiences and Hafez was looking a bit nonplussed and says, well, that's interesting. How many goats do you have? And the man says, you'd ask me about goats and I'm telling you about my visions of God. This is so insulting. And Hafiz says, yeah, how many goats do you have? You're a farmer. And so he tells him. And then Hafiz asks him a bunch of other questions about his life and his farm and his family and his children, his parents and how he takes care of them and um, all of that. And the man answers the questions and still a bit confused. And, and Hafiz says, you ask me if your visions of God, if your mystical experiences are true, and I say they are if they make you more kind and more caring to every person, every creature that you meet. Right? So the proof is in how we live, how these practices, insights, these meditation journeys, how they transform us into, into action, right? into the way we move and are with ourselves, with each other, with the world, with the... With the garden, with the bugs, with the birds. So, and there's no getting that one right. Um, we just like, there's no getting meditation right. There's no getting this moment right. We just show up as best we can. We do the best we can as we always do. And, um, you know, you'll probably maybe not even get to your car 
and you'll probably, I don't know, who knows, maybe you've forgotten something or you trip over or you lose your keys or you can't remember where you parked your car or who you drove in with and you start beating up on yourself and getting angry and frustrated and, God, I haven't even got to my car yet. I haven't left Spirit Rock and I've lost it already. And, and then we have a little drama, a little hissy fit, and then, and then at some point, mindfulness, as it will, as it does, re- reasserts, re-arises, re-establishes itself. And we go, oh, look at that. Oh, God, you, you got really mad. Like, that's, that's painful. Oh, that's, that, let's put that one down. Oh, yeah. Oh, and here we are back at Spare Rock still. Oh, yeah, it's beautiful. May I be happy. Yeah, oh, and, and there's the keys in my pocket after all. <laughs> That's usually true with me. I'm running around forever and, oh, they're in my pocket. I didn't know. <laughs> so to remember that the practice is in you, you know, the, the practice of awareness, you know, these qualities are in you, the awareness, kindness, compassion. And of course we forget. I mean, that's part of being human. Right? If we wouldn't forget, you wouldn't need to come on retreat. You'd just, you know, would send you off with your, your mindfulness meta package and then that would be it, you know, and, Spirit Rock would go broke, and then what would we do, you know? <laughs> so, um, to trust, you know, this is a farming practice. You've been farming these seeds of kindness and awareness, and they are taking root as we speak, and they will continue to take root. And as you cultivate them, they continue to flower, and as they flower, and you continue nurturing them, they grow, and they grow into trees and beautiful expressions, as I can see here, you know, beautiful expressions. This is from His Holiness. He said once somewhere, if you don't want to help the world, that's okay, but just don't cause any problems. (laughs) So another uh, great poem that I love from Hafez where he says... um, you have all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Do not mix them. Do not mix them. Right? Which, of course, we do, right? A little bit of uh, feeling deficient, a little bit of comparing mind, a little bit of self-judgment, a little bit of self-hatred. We mix it all up in a pot and we feel like crap. Right? We do that a lot, you know, before breakfast, you know. Oh, I haven't got out of bed yet and it's, it's 11 o'clock already and... Right? And then he also goes on to say, um, uh, um, uh, something about bringing, bringing, building a swing in, the, in, the, in, in your backyard for the divine, gathering your talented and beautiful friends. That sounds like a hell of a lot more fun to me. You have all the ingredients to turn your life into, into your existence into joy. Mix them and mix them. And that's what we're doing here. We're, we're, cult- we're growing those uh, ingredients. Yeah. Awareness, clarity, presence, patience, forgiveness, and many other things, right? We, we mix them and we mix them, mix them, a little compassion, a little joy. And what happens? We start to feel a sense of well-being, a sense of innate goodness, which is very, becomes to f- becomes, starts feeling more robust, more resilient.
So there's a cartoon, I love the Dharma teacher, Gary Larson, who uh, has, you know, has a great way of and pointing to human nature in a, in a funny way. And he has this cartoon that I love of um, in hell. We're in, we're in hell, we're in Satan's domain. And Satan's shouting to his mom, no, mom, no, stop doing that. And underneath <laughs> the caption, it says, um, despite his repeated uh, efforts to pers- dissuade his mother, he could never stop her from offering cookies and milk to the accursed. <laughs> and she's there with a little tray of milk and cookies and these new fresh recruits coming into hell and has got a little, you know, little devil's tail and horns. And so, you know, th- th- we can't stop the goodness of our nature, right? Even if we think, even if you know, some people say, "Oh, I have no love. I can't. I can't feel anything in matter. It's just like a block of ice." And you know, and then you're walking down the hill to the dining room, and someone trips over, and you're right there, like you haven't even thought, and you're just bending to help them up. It's not even a thought. It's just your instinctual, caring nature. You didn't have to think. Hmm, now, what would be the most compassionate thing to do? Shall I lean over? No, no. You just, you're just there, right? It's, it's our nature. The heart's nature is to care. This is a poem, if I can find my glasses. <laughs> They're with your keys. <laughs> They're with my keys. <laughs> yeah, wh- who moved my keys? <laughs> this is called Aimless Love. This is about this uh, good nature. This morning as I walked along the lake shore, I fell in love with a wren. And later in the day with a mouse, the cat had dropped under the dining room table. In the shadows of an autumn evening, I fell for a seamstress, still at her machine in the tailor's window, and later for a bowl of broth, steams rising like smoke from a naval battle. The love of the chestnut, the jazz cap on one, on one hand on the wheel. This is the best kind of love, I thought, without recompense, without gifts or unkind words, or without those silences on the telephone. Just a twinge every now and then for the wren who had built her nest on a low branch overhanging the water, and for the dead mouse still dressed in its light brown suit. But my heart is always propped up in a field on its tripod, ready for the next arrow. After I carried the mouse by the tail to a pile of leaves in the woods, I found myself standing at the bathroom sink, gazing down affectionately at the soap, so patient and soluble, so at home in its pale green soap dish. I could feel myself falling again as I felt its turning in my wet hands and caught the scent of lavender and stone. So that's simple. Maybe you felt yourself, you know, when you you were resting in presence, everything looks beautiful. You know, you could be staring at your fork. You know, the shape of the, those curved cups, not those, not those concave ones, but the curved ones. (laughs) And it's like, oh, and you see it in the light, it's just like, oh, beautiful. (laughs) <laughs> That's me anyway. <laughs> oh, I talked to her, my friend recently who just had a baby, and she said, it's amazing, I just knew what to do. Like, I, there was no manual, like you get the baby comes out, and it's like, oh, and crying, pop, farting and pooping, and, you know, and she said, I knew what to do. Like, it was amazing, it was like a shock to her, like she was freaked out about whether she could, you know, be a mom, and be a good mom, and all the worries that, that expectant mothers go through, and, I knew what to do, because it's innate, it's instinctual, it's within us. 
And it's very simple. You know, I think we overcomplicate, uh, well, we do overcomplicate things and practice. And, you know, and, and it's easy to overcomplicate, overcomplicate Buddhist teaching because there's a lot of it. And you can study the Abhidharma and the, you know, the Majjhima Nikayas and all the texts and different traditions. And, um, you know, I was doing some Dzogchen practice, which is a very beautiful, refined uh, practice in the Tibetan tradition. And they, they have these, these, use these wonderfully eloquent, loquacious, um, erudite words to describe the the infinite, spacious, empty, open, inexhaustible, clarity, radiance, nature of mind. And they go on and on and on and on. That was, that was, that was somewhat of a Luddite description. And then they say, and it's just your ordinary mind. <laughs> it's your ordinary naked mind right here, right now, available here and now. Right? So we can overcomplicate it with all these words and studies. And you know, there's a place for studying all that. And... It's very simple. Can I be here? You know, can I meet this moment as it is, with awareness, right now? Like right now, what's here? Are you aware? Are you meeting the moment? How are you meeting the moment? That's simple. It's not rocket science. And then the next moment. And then the next moment. So I have a friend who's a very inspiring human being. He's set up some wonderful organizations based around generosity and partly started from this story that he tells when he was in India. He's Indian, raised in, in the South Bay and was visiting relatives when he was a teenager and was riding on the back of his friend's moped and... Uh, Got really, got really uh, cossack because probably because the roads he was on were not knowing Indian back roads, probably not that great, and so he got a little cossack and it was got off the bike and was throwing up. And this man just pedaled up this country road and uh, got off his bike and pulled out a lemon out of his pocket, pulled out a knife out of the other pocket, sliced the lemon in half, gave it to Nipun, who ate it, and of course lemons help with nausea. And then the, without saying a word, the, the man put the knife back in his pocket, put the lemon back in his pocket, got back on his bike, cycled down the road, just like that. And, uh, and we know once Nipun kind of came to, it was like, oh, where did that man go? And who was that? And how come he had a lemon in his pocket? And <laughs> how amazing and how kind. He didn't even know who I am. He didn't say thank you. He didn't, you know. And it, and it was a profound, you know, just as we, have, we can have these moments and they're profound and they, they can completely alter our whole life's path, which it did for him actually. That there was something pivotal about that, that just genuine, um, boundless uh, kindness and, and uh, complete uh, non-self-centered generosity. And later he, uh, he went to college and he studied in um, uh, computer science, and uh, was already at that point turned on by the idea of generosity as being much more interesting than making a lot of money in Silicon Valley. And so he, he left grad school, and with a few friends, he decided to, instead of charging for his services, his, which were at the time, this was in the probably early 90s or late 80s when tech was just booming, 
he, he decided to offer his services for free. So he'd go around calling different non-profits and saying, hey, we've got this you know, great bunch of um, uh, techie engineers and we want to build you a website or you know, help you with um, some, some web stuff. And of course this was like, Web-so, what's a website? You know? And uh, anyhow, and so people at first were distrustful and then, and then they realized well, what a, it was a really amazing group of people. And so they, this is how they, they, um, they, they kind of grew their, grew their lives through generosity. And, and now he's founded as a, organizations online that touch thousands and tens of thousands of people. And <clears throat> but coming from this very simple act and also just doing what, what's in front of him, which was he had skills and he wanted to share them. And knewing what, you know, again, this, this discernment that, that our practice brings, of what brings happiness? What brings genuine happiness? And he realized that being generous, that kindness, that generosity of heart, is, and serving others, of course, as we know, is a far greater source of well-being than any kind of self-centered accumulation of wealth and possessions. I was teaching a course down in Guatemala a few years ago, and the same thing, we were out on a walk, we were going to a local village that was um, quite poor and uh, um, visiting you know, a school, which of course when you visit schools in certain in some, some places, there's just, it's kind of shocking, there's you know, three books locked up in a cupboard somewhere. And, um, and just before we'd gone there, a group had gone to see the school and the woman uh, happened to work for Microsoft. <clears throat> and um, she thought what, what a great service it would be if they had some access to computers. And so she went home and she talked to Microsoft. And um, at the time, they uh, were not so generous, so they, they, would, they weren't offering any <clears throat> free computers like that. So she just donated a bunch herself. And we, when, when we, so when I went there, by the time we got there, there were some computers and the kids were completely ecstatic. You know, this simple gift, just doing what's in front of us. <clears throat> this is from poet Naomi Shihab Nye, who we've talked about. The Arabs used to say, when a f- stranger appears at your door, feed them for three days before asking who they are, where they've come from, or where they've headed. That way, they'll have enough strength to answer. Or by then, you'll be such good friends, you don't even care. <laughs> Let's go back to that. Rice, pine nuts. Here, take the red brocade pillow. My child will serve water to your horse. No, I was not busy when you came. I was not preparing to be busy. That's the armor everyone puts on to pretend that they had a purpose in life. I refuse to be claimed. Your plate is waiting. We will snip fresh mint into your tea. <clears throat> so you may think about your lives and, and you know, the different ways, circles, avenues you move in. And to see where the, this flow, this natural flow, that's just the next step, the next thing in front of you. You know, it may just be going around to a neighbor who's elderly and lonely and, you know, just really appreciates company. Maybe giving a little more attention to your cat, you know, feeding the birds. Many different ways to extend the heart. This is a this is one way of doing that. This is um, uh, this is anonymous. I'm not quite sure where this is from. 
uh, a wise woman elder was asked what she used to make her complexion so beautiful and her whole being so bright and attractive. And she answered, I use for my lips truth. I use for my voice kindness. I use for my ears compassion. I use for my hands charity. I use for my figure uprightness. I use for my heart love. And I use for any who do not like me prayer. So, another person's way of doing that. Mother Teresa said, you can only do small things, but do them with great love. She was asked, how, how did you start this amazing worldwide organization that relieves suffering in all five continents? And la, 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 la. She said, you, know, you can only do small things. You just do, she said, she started by picking up the first person, the uh, homeless person on the streets who was sick in Calcutta, and she took him into a shelter, and that's how she started one step at a time. Another story. Somewhere in the south, a man on a bus, uh, on a bus sat a wispy old man uh, holding a bunch of fresh flowers. Across the aisle was a young girl whose eyes came back and forth again and again to the man's flowers. The time came for the old man to get off. Impulsively, he thrust the flowers into the girl's lap. I can see you love the flowers, he explained. And I think my wife would like for you to have them. I'll tell her I gave them to you. The girl accepted the flowers, then watched the old man get off the bus and walk through the gate of a small cemetery. And then sometimes it comes out of uh, uh, connecting with another's humanity. And out of that comes a, an unstoppable generosity. And this is a story that speaks to that. And again, I could, I could see this happening to any one of you here, uh, given the right circumstances. So I haven't had a job since April 2011 due to multiple health issues. I currently draw disability, but I'm having trouble finding money at the end of the month. So I decided I'd look for a part-time job. I'd been applying and interviewing since July with no prospects. And then one evening, uh, on a Tuesday, it was freezing cold outside, and it was going on 9 p.m. I'd been looking for work and was coming back home, and I was waiting at a city bus stop. Just as the bus pulled up, a young woman walked up to the bus stop. She had a t-shirt, a caprice. What's a caprice? Pants? Okay, she had pants on. She had a t-shirt, <laughs> but shorts? Okay, all right. She had some of those. She had t-shirt, caprice, and flip-flops on. She also was wearing several hospital bracelets and looked terribly cold. I asked her her name and if she had a coat or anywhere to go. She quickly told me that she'd lost her apartment because she'd lost her job and then got very sick and was put in the hospital. She had no family in the area and didn't know where she was going to sleep that night. I dug in my purse and took out some bus tickets and $5 so she could get something to eat. I then took off my jacket and tennis shoes and gave them to her. I said these were a little big, and they, but they should keep you warm. She looked at me and said, aren't you going to be cold? I told her for me, being cold for about 15 minutes until I get to my place is worth it if I know you'd be a little warmer tonight, or for wherever you'd end up. She cried and thanked me with a hug. I just told her to pass it on, 
and that pass it on is a comes from um, this random act of kindness, um, which is one of the things that Nipun, the person I was talking about earlier, had, start, had started this this principle. Not started, but he um, has this whole way of passing on generosity by sharing bounty with others. Then after I got on the bus, that's when the miracle of spreading kindness happened. I stepped up to pay the fare and the bus driver says, Ma'am, I saw what you just did and your fare is on me. Even though technically we're not supposed to let you on the bus without shoes, he said with a wink. (laughs) I went to sit down and this lady who was dressed in a very professional business who calls me over to her seat. She says, I want to know the name of the person who just did the most inspiring thing I've ever seen. I told her my name and she's like, well, what can I do for you? How can I give back what I witnessed? I jokingly said a paying job would be nice. She said I might be able to work something out. She asked for my name and num- number and she would call me the next day. And then it turns out this woman was head of HR and she called her into an interview and she got a part-time job. And you know. But again, clearly not why she did it. Right? That, that generosity, that kindness was just the unstoppable movement of the heart. When, when we see, when our hearts open, unblocked, and we're not caught in self-centered fear or grasping or scarcity mentality. <clears throat> so one question to ask of yourselves in this moment and as you go home, before you go home tomorrow, is where is kindness most needed in your lives? Where is the, the qualities of heartfulness and compassion most needed? And one of the places that it's often needed is with ourselves. For how many people was, was wishing metta for yourselves, turning the lens of kindness to yourself, the hardest part of the metta practice that we did? So good, good third of you, probably. Yeah, and so often we are the place that is in, in need of, um, it's often a sort of parched desert in terms of the way that we relate to ourselves. If you remember about how you arrived, all exhausted and tired and burnt out and whatnot, um, often that's because of not taking care of ourselves, not listening to the body, over, overdoing it in various ways. And so sometimes the simple act of kindness is just taking care of the body, listening to its needs and actually responding. You know, what a radical thing to do. Like the body's tired, go to sleep. Body's hungry, feed it. <laughs> um, sometimes these things are very simple. So the meta practice is a beautiful practice in that it helps to re- helps us to remember our own goodness, which is so easy for us to forget with our habits of um, deficiency, of scarcity, of not enoughness, of listening to the messages we've been told or the way we can compare ourselves to how we think we should be in the world, whether it's body image or economic status or w- whatever the the metric. So I wish for you that you um, hold this uh, phrase that Walt Whitman says. He says, And as to me, I know of nothing but miracles. And as to me, I know of nothing but miracles. That would be a really interesting way to hold oneself. As to me, I know of nothing but miracles. Or just to simply accept our humanness, our foibles, our idiosyncrasies. It's what makes us interesting, actually is our eccentricities and our oddities and personality quirks and, you know. Is that great?
great Charlie Brown cartoon where Lucy says in her psychology booth, I think, she says to Charlie, the problem with you, Charlie, is that you're you. (laughs) And he says, well, what am I supposed to do with that? And of course Lucy says, I can only claim to diagnose the problem. I can't claim to fix it. (laughs) Something like that. So there's a story of uh, His Holiness visiting some monastery somewhere. I don't know where it was. It was a Benedictine monastery. It might have been Thomas Merton's monastery. Somewhere, somewhere where they make um, mead and jams and you know all the various things that cheeses and things that often get made in these uh, monasteries. Um, I don't know why we don't make beer. I don't know what's up with that, but. You know. um, <laughs> This doesn't really jive with Buddhist ethics. But anyhow, that's another story. Um, anyhow, so he's getting this tour around the monastery and he's been shown the, you know, the, where they make the, the wine or the beer and the cheese and they, they give him samples to taste of the beer and the different cheeses and the breads. And, and all the way through he's thinking, I just want the jam. I just want to taste the jam. <laughs> give me some jam. And they don't give him any jam. <laughs> And he tells that story and he laughs and he laughs as he does. And he's just the humanness of it. You know, we're human. <clears throat> Anyhow. So um, there's a lovely uh, piece here that I want to read. Um, this is for the activists in the room or for any of those. Anybody here uh, do too much in your life? Anybody here take on too many projects? Anybody here say yes to too many things? Anybody here try to save too many things in the world at once and end up burning yourself out? So this is from Thomas Merton, who, um, both an activist and worked with activists. He said, There is a pervasive form of contemporary violence to which the idealist fighting for peace by nonviolent methods most easily succumbs, activism and overwork. The rush and pressure of modern life are a form, perhaps, the most common form of its innate violence. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything is to succumb to violence. The frenzy of the activist neutralizes work for peace. It destroys the fruitfulness of work because it kills the inner root, it kills the root of inner wisdom which makes work fruitful. So, I'm the last person who would want any person who has any wish to help relieve suffering in the world to say, don't do that. (laughs) Because the world needs people who care, people who are willing to help step in to relieve the suffering of each other and the planet. And it also has to be balanced, grounded in wisdom and clarity. And you know we take care of this vessel as we take care of the vessel in which we're living. My favorite Spanish proverb, I lived in Spain for a while and uh, I learned the art of the siesta, which I've happily uh, done as a, probably my most consistent practice <laughs> for the last 30 years. And the, the, um, the proverb is, it is beautiful to do nothing and rest afterwards. And it's, beautiful. <laughs> and it's beautiful to do nothing. So after the retreat, go take a nap. You know, go rest. You've been doing lots of nothing here. And then take a long rest. 
you know only the Spanish would invent the that phrase right <laughs> but to to think to, to to think about where where you can rest in your life, you know we get so busy in doing and being busy bodies and important people doing things and and there's something very beautiful about just resting and taking care of this being here. And at the same time, we juxtapose that with taking care of, you know, if we're asking where is, where is compassion, kindness needed, so first with ourselves, and of course with life around us. Maybe in your, in your relationships, maybe in your, in your work life, in your family life. I think one of the, the hardest places that we, that we are asked to practice is at work. Um, particularly with our colleagues, but more, more particularly with our managers and bosses, uh, who probably don't practice mindfulness and kindness and uh, mindful communication like you were doing today, um, and um, maybe may practice you know some form of hostility or passive aggressive behavior, or you know, and and how to how to show up with with equanimity and kindness and and, and healthy boundaries and presence and all of that, uh, not easy at all. And I, I work with many people where that's challenging uh, to d- deal with every day. Sylvia Borstein has this line that I like. She says, life is so difficult, how can we be anything but kind? Life is so difficult, how can we be anything but kind? And so in this retreat, as we learn to meet our own struggle, our own humanity, our own suffering, one of the things that grows out of that is compassion. Compassion for our own pain, anguish, and as the cup overfloweth, and then we, we, we're able to also feel and let in the pain of others. Uh, it's a beautiful thing when the heart breaks open, usually the heart, my experience, my heart needed to break open before I could really let in the pain of others. I was, I think I was a, you know, caring enough person, but I wasn't able to really feel the depth of compassion because I hadn't opened to the, the trauma and the levels of pain that I was carrying. And so I was always, you know, as we do, we keep, we keep at a distance whatever we can't, whatever we keep at a distance in ourselves. And so there's something very profound and beautiful, actually, when our heart breaks open, whether it's through loss of a loved one, whether it's through physical pain and trauma, whether it's through emotional heartbreak, or whether it's life circumstance, or who knows where, you know, but we don't get away without feeling some kind of pain and uh, trauma in this life. Um, the beauty of that is it, is it, is it, you know, the, 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 the compassionate heart can flow. And the more we do our inner work, the more, the more unbounded it is. You know, and I've, I know for me as I'm teaching, it's, a, it's an interesting place because I, I get to hear, when I get to read some of the stories, but I, I mostly get to hear the stories. And you look around the room and, you know, if someone came in here, they go, oh, people look, you know, really quite well and healthy and they look like they've got good lives and they, they're at Spirit Rocks, they're obviously, you know, can afford to be here and, you know, they must be really, you know, doing quite well and, um, but we, we no, you would have no idea what's beneath the surface, right? 
And each of you know what's beneath your surface, and each one of us has that that layer. Right? And sometimes my heart breaks actually when I when I when I look around and I feel into people's stories and journeys, and feel the struggle and and also the tenacity. And that's partly why I feel, and we feel that sense of. Um, uh, respect and admiration, because it's not—it's not easy. You know, each of you has your own journey and toil, and um, uh, it's a beautiful thing. So to and then to to let that flow out to wherever you encounter suffering, wherever you encounter vulnerability. Yeah? One of the things that when the heart breaks open. It, it opens us to vulnerability, which is a beautiful human emotion that sadly much of the world has closed itself off to because it requires a lot of strength to feel vulnerable. It requires a lot of courage to feel vulnerable. So this is a story that really touched me. Um, and it's about the way somebody meets another's predicament um, in a very ordinary way, and it's really the ordinariness that I think is what's so profound in in human beings, the way we meet each other, and um, it's really what this story to me embodies is this sense of uh, the the presence that we show up. You know, one of the things that you don't see that none of us see, we don't see our own presence. We may feel our presence, but we don't see our presence. You can look around the room. And you can see that people's presence as radiant, like after the silence broke, you know, when you were having the dialogue with people, right? There's a lot of presence, right? But it's hard for us to know our presence, but that's one of the gifts we give when we leave the retreat, is the gift of our presence. So this is, this person I think was embodying that in a way, even though it was in the middle of the night. I arrived at the address and honked the horn. After waiting a few minutes, I honked again. Since this was going to be my last shift of last ride of my shift, I thought about just driving away. But instead, I put the taxi in parked and walked up to the door and knocked. Just a minute, answered a frail elderly voice. I could hear something being dragged across the floor. After a long pause, the door opened. A small woman in her 90s stood before me. She was wearing a print dress and a pillbox hat with a veil pinned on it. By her side was a small nylon suitcase. The apartment looked as if no one had lived in it for years. All the furniture was covered with sheets. There were no clocks on the walls, no knickknacks or utensils on the counters. Would you carry my bag out to the car, she said. I took the suitcase to the cab and returned to assist the woman. She took my arm and we walked towards the curb slowly. She kept thanking me for my kindness. Oh, it's nothing, I told her. I just treat, try to treat my passengers the way I'd want my mother to be treated. Oh, you're such a good man, she said. When we got in the cab, she gave me an address and then asked, could you drive through downtown on the way? Well, I said, it's not the shortest way. Oh, I don't mind, she said. I'm in no hurry. I'm on my way to hospice. I looked in the rearview mirror. Her eyes were glistening. I don't have any family left, she continued in a soft voice. The doctor says I don't have very long. I quietly reached over and shut off the meter. What route would you like me to take, I asked. For the next two hours, we drove through the city. She showed me the building where she'd once worked as an elevator operator, had me pull up in front of a furniture warehouse that had once been a ballroom. Sometimes she'd ask me to slow in front of a particular building or corner and would sit staring into the darkness saying nothing. 
as the first hint of sun was creasing the horizons, she suddenly said, I'm tired, let's go now. We drove in silence to the address she'd given. It was a low building, like a convalescent home. Two orderlies came out to the cab as soon as we pulled up. I opened the trunk and took the suitcase to the door. How much do I owe you, she asked. Oh, nothing, I said. But you have to make a living. Oh, there's other passengers. Almost without thinking, I bent and gave her a hug. It always touches me when I read this story. She held on to me tightly. You gave an old woman a little moment of joy, she said. Thank you. I squeezed her hand and walked into the dim morning light. Behind me, a door shut. It was the sound of the closing of a life. I didn't pick up any more passengers that shift. I drove aimlessly lost in thought. For the rest of the day, I could hardly talk. What if that woman had gotten an angry driver, or one who was impatient to end his shift? What if I'd refused to take the run, or had honked once and driven away? On a quick review, I don't think I've done anything more important in my life. So that's simple, yeah. That simple. And we all have that capacity to meet ourselves, to meet others. We never know where we will meet that. We'll never know who's carrying a burden, because we're all carrying burdens, often well hidden. So let's sit together. remember kindness and compassion as the nature of our hearts. May that heart of compassion flow in as many streams, in many ways as possible. So we'll um, have the bell ring, ring the bell at nine, and we'll come back. We'll come back and sit in here at nine o five. Thank you. <laughs>